With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Lighthouse Look Back. My name is Noel Fulkman. Be sure to subscribe to the Lighthouse Hockey Channel on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. Lighthouse Look Back is a podcast where we catch up with former Islanders, whether they have played just one game or hundreds with the team. Brad Del Garner was selected 6th overall in the 1985 draft. Garrett King was also selected 7 picks later. Brad reveals what event in juniors caused him to have a surge in the pre-draft rankings. The former Islander tells me the reason he originally retired back in 1989. Brad returned a year later and had to deal with the ramifications of his decision. His career year was the 1992-93 season as part of the kid line with Marty McGinnis and Travis Green, Brad scored 15 goals and had 32 points. Unfortunately, injuries derailed his career, and Brad retired in 1996 at the age of 28. He fills me in of what he's been up to. Celebrating 20 years of running a marketing agency based here in Toronto, and I have offices in Chicago. So we have been um, stumbled into a few jobs after I played. They got me into marketing um, and um, consulting for some tech companies. Um, based on my experience uh, being part of the NHL PA and being the player rep for the Islanders for uh, a handful of years, kind of got me involved in some of those, uh, the, I don't know, just the, the idea of business, the idea of our licensing and marketing and understanding those components and was able to apply some of that knowledge uh, as I left, which introduced me to careers that I had never thought of. And um, so after 
actually buying, which is a whole, we could do a whole podcast on Pat Flatley's family had a bagel franchise called the Great American Bagel. They okay. also started one in Canada called the Great Canadian Bagel. I happened to be injured for a stretch with Pat for a while. And uh, by the end of that, I ended up buying a bloody franchise. So wow. that was a bit of a, that was a bit of when I first retired, I came back, back uh, to the Toronto area and started running that franchise that was doing great gangbusters in terms of sales. But uh, as a new businessman, I didn't know how to run that and right. was losing money. And so within a year and a half, did a whole bunch of crash courses in terms of understanding P&Ls and balance sheets and how to run a business and uh, turned that thing around, sold it, and then moved into more marketing, which was really where I was stronger. And so Starshot, which is my current marketing agency, um, is celebrating 20 years uh, this coming year. And uh, we primarily do um, half the business. We do uh, events for Fortune 100 tech companies like uh, HP and uh, Intel and um, Amazon. So we've somehow ended up in this tech technology space, and it's been really great for us. And the other half is uh, we do sales enablement, which is less sexy, but it's mm. uh, it's a it's a, it's been a good. Um, and, and fascinating 20 years, and, and I, I feel very lucky that I uh, ended up in this field. Right. Now, was this something like even playing hockey, you kind of had like kind of an idea you wanted to get into a marketing business or something business, or were you always focused hockey and then you worry about what's going to happen post-hockey? Well, it's funny. We, um, I listened to other guys talk, and there was, it's almost to many guys, the idea of thinking about life after hockey was somehow – um, you know, it somehow would cause harm to your career. Guys didn't want to think about life after hockey. I, on the other hand, felt thinking about life after hockey was a, a great, um, you know, it was a great opportunity to kind of challenge my brain in other ways, feel that uh, I had more control for little bits of time, whether I was taking courses in the summer, whether I was taking online courses, whether I was reading books. Um, I was always thinking, this thing's going to end. I never really had a career that felt like I was there. You know, I never felt like I had a permanent seat at the table. So I always thought, okay, this is going to end clearly. I know that's going to happen. So uh, I may as well start, you know, getting involved in uh, life after hockey. I was maybe a little bit naive to think that, that, that any of that advanced work or thinking that I would have done was going to make it any easier because it certainly wasn't easy. But uh, I was just – there was a there was a, maybe a handful of guys over my career that would take summer courses, would take courses. Ken Baumgartner was becoming a you know bloody lawyer. He was taking university courses. So I had a few guys that we could share um, that journey uh, with, but uh, largely you know, it wasn't you know a popular thing to to think about and talk about openly that you know you're studying and taking courses and um, it was not a thing. And even today, I, I think guys feel it, it somehow uh, can jinx your career. And I just never kind of bought into that. Right. Oh, I can only imagine Kenny, in a courthouse, you know, probably intimidating a witness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, now to your hockey career, you know, number one pick, you, you know, highly touted, and then you get drafted by the Islanders six overall, the cover runs over, but they still have all those hall of fame players. Uh, you get into your first camp. That must've been like surreal to see like, maybe players you were watching, you know, growing up. Exactly that. Uh, I, first of all, I was drafted sixth overall, largely 
I mean, I was a decent player, but I had one fight, which I'm really not known for being a fighter. Right. Uh, in junior hockey with Bob Probert on, a, on an OHL game of the week. And hmm. I did pretty well as a 16-year-old holding, you know, standing in there with Bob. And within the last two months heading into that draft, my rating went quite honestly through the roof. All of a sudden, you know, I go sixth overall to the Islanders. The upside of that is you're a sixth overall pick. You you know, you get a little bit more attention. The downside is you quickly realize that they drafted you because they think you're that guy that you were with Bob Probert. And, I, and right. that was really not my game. Right. So, it took, you know, but, wa- you know, walking into that dressing room that first day, everybody's sitting around in their, you know, Stanfield pajamas, which was what everybody wore as their uh, long john, long john uh, underwear. And, uh, uh, you know, it's all of the heroes. All my heroes were sitting around there stretching on a floor. And, you know, there's Trache and, you know, Nystrom and Gillies. And like, it, was, it was like literally walking into a museum of real men. And right. uh, I do remember the distinct feeling that, uh, you know, that, that kind of feeling like, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, it's like <laughs> these are men. They smelled like men. They they, right. they took up space like men. Uh, and, uh, you know, at that age and that time of that of that team, you know, it was very clear that uh, I wasn't about to take anyone's job that quickly. Right. So, like, I, your, your first, I think you played maybe what? A game after your, your one or two games after your first uh, training camp, and you went back to uh, the AHL. But like, what did you take from like being there the first like training camp and like your handful of games? Honest to God, it's um, I think, uh, and I went back to the OHL. Not I was I was not oh. in the AHL at that point. Oh, right, right. Sorry. So my first few games were um, when I was still playing in the in junior, and I'd come up for a game or two in the playoffs, or I'd you know come up and stick around for. For a bit, and uh, the uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, I think one of the first things I learned was um, Mike Boss. We were in practice, and, and uh, my coach in junior um, gave me made me use a stick that was the biggest blade stick you could legally have. <laughs> he told me I wasn't going to be a goal scorer, but stand in front of the net and use it like basically like a paddle to just chop at people <laughs> and the puck. Right. And the problem was I, it, that stick was so crappy uh, in terms of taking NHL weighted passes. Um, I, I think I was maybe two days in and uh, I was getting these NHL passes that would just make the end of the stick like flutter like a hockey card. <laughs> I couldn't take a pass. And Mike Bossy finally gave me uh, a stick and said, dude, just like use this. And uh, funny enough, I still use that pattern today. Uh, which is getting harder to find, quite frankly, a square toe, beautiful heel curve stick. God, I love that. Um, and I certainly didn't ever figure out how to use it like Bossy did, but uh, it was stiff. You could take passes. It was great. But, it, you know, that's what you learn. You learn there's a weight to things. There's a, there's a heaviness, um, a mass. Um, uh, your passes should have mass and, and weight. And, and that kind of thing was what I would bring back to junior. And I think that over time for, for any young hockey player is a transition that at the time was really rare for anybody to come out as an 18-year-old and make a team back then. And when it, when it happened, it was very rare. And quite frankly, there were one or two guys that came up as 18-year-olds that, uh, you know, kind of wrecked them. They, they, they weren't able to, to be successful. So it's a tough thing. But when you come up, boy, and you, you know, you, you're scrambling for what you can have and, 
you're intimidated and scared to death. I mean, I, I, I was about to, you know, jump over the boards for that first shift of that first game. And I really thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> your brain's going, your breathing's off and you jump on and the pace of the game was so fast. So once you get some of that and you bring it back to the, uh, to the OHL, all of a sudden that game feels a bit slower. And oh my gosh, the opportunities start looking. So it gives you an opportunity to kind of excel at your level and build new skills and to develop. And uh, so those experiences were great. Playing with your heroes was amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I really only got to know a lot of those guys in the, in the years later when, you know, as alumni, we would get together. And uh, we've bonded over the years just through that shared experience. Right. And, and I know the Islanders do a great job now with the you know, alumni. That anyone who's played even a game with them, you know, is, is invited. Um, now, are there teammates that you played with that you always look forward to kind of catching up with or even new ones just to, like, you know, shoot the shit, so to speak? <laughs> well, uh, you know what? Like, I would say, you know, you brought up, you know, our 92-93 team. You know, I went through, as did the team, I went through some really dark years there uh, for a stretch. Right. Personally, I went through some dark years. I had some horrible injuries, had some horrible setbacks, um, and uh, and was very lucky to be part of that team. Um, it gives me something to look back on that uh, you know I'm incredibly proud of, and uh, and it's really some of the guys from that era that you know you're able to have that shared experience, and, and of course, you know. Travis and Marty, I mean, if we were around a table right now, I'm sure it would be like no time had passed. And I do, I've had the, I've had the opportunity to catch up with, with uh, Travis a fair bit and love that. And um, again, I'd love to see Marty, although I have not recently. And so, yeah, it's nice. Um, and quite frankly, um, the longer that time elapses from when you play, there are guys from other eras that you didn't really know at the time that, you find a lot more common ground and common experiences. And um, so anyways, I, I love coming down. I wasn't able to come down this year because it was on a, on a bad weekend for me. What also happens is when you, when, if you don't stay in the game, boy, you know, everybody just kind of goes into their cave right. and tries to carve out a life for yourself. And, and, you know, pretty much everybody rebuilds that from scratch. You know, you come back to your hometowns and, Maybe, you know, all your old high school buddies aren't quite, they don't, doesn't groove the same way. So then you're going to start from scratch and that takes time to refine yourself. So it's nice to come back and, and find those common threads um, because even my perception of how things were or at, at different times are grounded or, or, or reshaped by hearing other people tell those stories. And I'm like, my God, I'd forgotten those details. I hadn't forgotten that. And, and uh, so it's important to come together to share those because I think it helps balance out um, particularly some of those darker periods for me. It makes me feel a little bit more uh, um, hopeful about, uh, you know, w what that experience was for me. Right. And you, you mentioned one of the dark times, uh, you know, being drafted, you know, supposedly you're a fighter after the one fight with Bob Probert. And here you are facing off against Joey Koser, which, I mean, that must've been like surreal. And then unfortunately that kind of like put you out for a long time. Well, that, Ultimately, that 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 put me in a mental space uh, where I, I quit the the league. Right. But um, you know that that whole thing with with kosher, you know, I actually came across um, uh, the clip of me. I'm trying to think who I boarded, but I got a boarding penalty, and uh, you know, it wasn't a malicious thing. I, I was watching the play, and it was like he turned his back to the right. I came from the boom, and I hit him in the back, and he went in head first. Well, I was a marked man after that. 
Right. And that whole Joey Kosher thing, um, uh, Detroit just kept putting him out, and uh, I kept being put on the ice. And it got to the point, I really did not want to fight Joey Kosher. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was basically stalking me when I was still in the penalty box. Uh, so I knew it was coming. I was being a little bit uh, – um, I was being a lot timid maybe. Not a little bit. I was being a lot right. timid about, oh, crap, this is going to happen. I don't – you know, I'm just going to avoid. I'm going to work hard. And it got to the point where uh, the linesman, as he was dropping the puck once, and Joey Kosher was hacking me at, at, at the faceoff, he looked up before he dropped the puck and said to me, are you going to get this over with? <laughs> so when I realized that I had – like, there's no protection here. This has to happen. Right. Basically went into, I think it was our end, um, and uh, Puck was in there. Joey Kosher goes in there. We both go in there. We drop the gloves, and we go at it. And uh, all I'm thinking is, you know, stay tight, start hitting, start punching. And I'm thinking I'm doing okay. I'm hanging in there. And then at some point I thought, all right, well, we should tie up now. That's about it. And the refs keep going. They go, keep going, boys. <laughs> I'm like, I have no interest in this thing keeping going. That was it. That was the show. We're done. Right. And, uh, in that time after uh, we uh, we kept going, I had his arm, I had his jersey, and I could feel his arm slipping slowly out of his jersey. And the minute I had nothing but cotton, that he had wound up a punch that came from New Jersey, I think, and it popped me on the temple. It didn't even cut me, but it hit me at such a perfect uh, a perfect uh, uh, location on the temple that it caused like a multiple facial fractures and I could feel the heat inside my face felt like a bit like an egg broke and just melted in my face. I'm like, Oh damn. And uh, I went off the ice and knew something was wrong. And it took uh, really, it took a day and a half to determine that I, you know, the, the, the orbit broke and the cheekbones crap. So he is a, he, you know, so I, I am unfortunately a footnote, uh, in his career, uh, you know, if you read a Joey Kosher bio, uh, right. I am for sure mentioned as one of his trophies. But uh, uh, it was it was a defining thing, and it it I'd say it, you know, I don't think the Islanders um, were set up at at that time to support players through that kind of stuff. And uh, I came back, and I was wearing a visor, and I was told through my agent that you know you're not going to play here again until you get your visor off. Wow. And I'm like, you know, I almost lost my eye. I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, so it was, uh, I, I, I think it was still a little bit of that old school hockey um, and a system that uh, wasn't set up to deal with uh, um, uh, uh, psychological stuff. And, um, you know, I was healthy when I came back, but I was not that guy. I was not confident. I was even more timid. And I I, I, I was being sent to the minors, and I, I, I basically told uh, – Bill Torrey, when he was sending a bunch of us to the minors, one by one in this dressing room, I just he said, Brad, we got to talk. Right. You picture a movie scene, a dark dressing room with nothing in it but two folding chairs facing each other. And I, even though there wasn't, I, I could picture a spotlight over each of us. And he <laughs> just goes, Brad, we have to talk. And I said, Bill, yes, we do. And then he paused and said, okay, you first. And that's when I said, Bill, I think, um, I think I'm done. I think I got to get out of this thing and I, I got to go find myself because, you know, I, 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 I'm not the guy you want me to be. And I can't be that guy. I'm not going to be that guy. And uh, so I quit and I was never to go back. And uh, I came home and my wife 
thank God, as a teacher, she, you know, she got in her teaching and we were living at her parents and we were figuring it all out. And uh, at the end of that season, I had just written an, uh, written an exam and raced to Maple Leaf Gardens because I wanted to see Derek King, who was my old roommate. Right. And uh, bought a scalp ticket. I was up in the grays and then walked down to see Derek. But I just happened to pass by Bill Torrey and Al Arbor randomly. Said, hello. Nothing happened. And then the next morning, I get a call from my agent that said, you know, I talked to Bill. Bill, Bill Torrey called me. He said he saw you last night. And you're looking great. What the hell's going on? <laughs> and I said, well, I, I don't know. He said, Bill's offering you a chance. If you want to come back, they're going to they'll let you come back to training camp if you want to come back. And I like, you know, I didn't think much of it at the time. And I had learned so much about myself in that year off, about internal motivation and focus. And I just I found myself and uh, I had had a I had a feeling that, you know, if I could be this guy back in the NHL, it would have been a different experience than the guy I was. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come back which was not a popular decision with a lot of guys on that team, by the way. Really? And, uh, my first shift back was a, like it was a blue and white scrimmage game. And in that first shift, I got cross checked in the face and broke the top of my jaw and lost right. four teeth. And, um, and oddly enough, you know, got them wired in, got them taken out. The next, you know, I put a football thing on my chin and um, I was a different guy, battled through it and ultimately made the team. Um, but it took years, and quite frankly, even, you know, played another, well, five, six years, and, you know, even to this day, I think guys at that time were, you know, I would, I would often hear the chirp, you know, ah, you're going to quit on us, not from my only team, but, you know, from, so I had a thing of being a quitter, and uh, I don't know, I found myself, I played, you know, uh, hockey I loved, and if I hadn't come back, well, quite frankly, I would not have been able to be the guy to be a part of that 92-93 team, which was amazing, because, our kid line of Travis and Marty and I um, really, um, you know, we, we, we all three of us had the best year of our careers in that time. And uh, it was the most um, uh, fixed and solid that I think I'd ever felt on a team and the most confident. And I really felt part of that year more so than any year. And, and the results were spectacular. So I feel very fortunate to be part of that era, even though we didn't get past Montreal um, it was a special year uh, for a bunch of us. Right. Uh, going back to uh, so much to take in from there. That was amazing. Uh, Joey Kosha, did he ever reach out to you after what happened? No, no, no. Okay. Um, um, All right. I, you know, and I, I don't have a problem with Joey Kosha. It's amazing with hockey players. And I love actually seeing – I'm not a fan of you – I know, never was a fan of uh, the fighting aspect of the game. I never could do it. I just – it is a different discipline, and I, I, you know, I have all the respect in the world for guys that could do it. Um, uh, I wasn't that guy, but I do really enjoy when old hockey players get together, and you see two guys that were at war with one another for, you know, the better part of their career, and, and had some amazingly scary tilts, and they sit down and they are as friendly as they. Even though you were on either sides of that war, um, you know, there's a shared experience um, that uh, it's an interesting when you see guys come together and have that respect for each other. Um, so I don't hold grudges against many guys. There's a few players that I, I, I to this day, you know, I, I just thought were cheap, dirty pricks. But, um, you know, Dale Hunter being one of them. 
Oh yeah, of course. Um, and I funny, I just came through, came across that video not that long ago. We were cleaning up some old videotapes, and I, I came across uh, Game Six. Um, was it Game Six? Yeah, uh, Game Six. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think the same game. I was like, oh my god, this is my first ever playoff game. My playoff goal this was pretty cool. And then I watched. Right. And I'm like, oh crap, this is where this happens. And I had to watch to the end to see. Uh, and I just can't imagine that, that that even happened. But anyway, so I have a problem. Like Dale Hunter is a guy that you know, little scrums in front of the net. He'd leave a good inch of the butt end out of his glove and face wash you with wood. And it's yeah. just dirty guys. I, those guys I hate. But the fighting, the kosher. If I ever came across him, I'd have no problem with Joey Kosher. That was what he did. And uh, whether he, you know, had a personal vendetta, I just know he knew that was his job, and he had right. to come and get me. Yeah. Like, looking at the game now, I mean, there wouldn't really be a place for him. I mean, because, you know, fighting is completely down. And if you fight, you got to score a goal now. Yeah. Well, you got, well, that's why, you know, you watch teams today. And, uh, you know, I I love that notion of just team toughness. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I do miss, although it does come back a little bit in the playoffs, but, you know, watching, you know, when I watch the Leafs now, when I watch, um, I don't get it to, to watch as many Islander games, but, um, I get frustrated at, at, at a little bit, well, I get frustrated at that lack of finishing. Um, and I think, you know, we beat Pittsburgh um, with grit and finishing checks and being a little, you know, a little cheap and dirty ourselves uh, <laughs> over a team that just knew they were more talented. And, uh, uh, and I, I always felt hard work can beat skill on any given night. Uh, and the only way to change the dynamic of that is not necessarily – I never was rare. I was rarely a guy on a bench that saw a fight and go, okay, we're charged up now. Way to go. I would always get excited when I would see, um, you know, a Turgeon or a Patty Lafontaine finish a check because they knew we needed to change the energy of a game. And right. that would be like, oh, snap. We got – let's do this. Like, we're going. I That's how I was. I'm you know, And I'm programmed way different than other guys. But that to me was um, – just kick-ass awesome. And so I, you know, I was, you know, I knew I my job, particularly when I kind of settled into that third line, I needed to not only finish and get in the way, um, but, uh, you know, what we were able to start doing is chipping in some goals in 92-93 that, that, that helped balance out our, our, our roster and our, and our, our you know, our, our wins. Um, but that was, um, that to me is where excitement today is lacking. I'm amazed at the skill level today. I'm amazed at the the, the fitness levels today. Um, I just wish there was a little bit more finish once in a while. I think that could change the the, the, the complexity of, of the game a little bit. Right, and then you you know you had a, a monumental check on Mario in Game One that caused him to miss the rest of that game in Game Two. Was that game? Funny enough, I was trying to figure that out. I saw that, and I, I do remember running into him. That was in Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, and I remember seeing him coming up and I just went right into him and it's, we, we both just basically ran into a cement wall. We both stopped cold. I think I, I knocked the wind out of myself hitting him. He didn't move for a second and he went off. And, uh, you know, I, I had remembered that and I kind of thought, did I miss, did I, did I not remember this correctly? Because I didn't, I couldn't find it anywhere. I didn't know. I thought that was kind of a, a pivotal moment for me in that series that I was able to kind of do that. But um, I do remember distinctly having the wind knocked out of me hitting him. He was a big, big, 
guy. And uh, uh, it was, uh, it, it kind of, I felt we could chip away at them because uh, it wasn't, it was, it wasn't just me. It was, you know, it was a whole bunch of even unfortunate things. I bumped into Kevin Stevens not that long ago. And, uh, you know, that was a horrible uh, series for him, you know, with right, yeah. there wasn't an intentional thing, but we were a force um, and uh, we were basically throwing everything we had at it. And I think that was part of the reason why we showed up in Montreal with like no day's rest. Exactly. Uh, unable to recover. Yeah. Now, you guys stole game one. I guess stealing is a bad word, but you, you took, you know, took home ice advantage by winning game one. Had you not win that game, you think that would have been a short series? God, I've never even contemplated that. I, honestly, I don't even know. Uh, I think the whole damn thing felt like uh, it felt. I thought by then we felt we could not just steal. I think we could earn it. Right. I, I think we had earned, I think we had developed enough um, confidence looking around the room and what we were able to do just even getting in that year, uh, you know, mustering out that last, God, I don't even know if it was the last week or two of the season that we actually got the points we needed to get in. Yeah. And, uh, and Washington, which, you know, we, we started to play better then and continue the momentum. Um, but I don't know. I, I, it was a weird confidence going into Pittsburgh. Uh, I, I, I just think we had been um, – I think we had thrown so much at it to, to, to kind of, you know, fell the, uh, the giants to, to, to knock them down that uh, we had not thought past today. You know, we didn't save it, which you can't save. In the playoffs, you, that's why you know, winning the Stanley Cup is incredible because you are – you have nothing left in the tank. You have – Right. You know, every single if you're not injured, you're not working hard in the in the playoffs. And so I don't know. We got through that series. I I just thought even when they would always they would snap back. We'd get a lead and they'd snap it back. Get a lead, snap it back. They'd get a lead. We were able to. It was uh, I I'd never played on a team that felt we could win if we wanted. And that was a team, and that was particularly a series that I never ever felt we felt disheartened by or out of it ever. Um, and then I just think you look around our, our team meeting the, the next day, basically in Montreal, and we we looked like we looked like uh, you know literally like we were all just coming back from uh, uh, you know the war, right? Eat up and limping and exhausted and gaunt and we hadn't been eating enough and you know nutrition wasn't really a big thing back then and uh, then we were back at it with Montreal who was stellar quite frankly they had a stellar team. Uh, and uh, with uh, with Roy and that it was you know they were almost unbeatable. Well, they were unbeatable that year. Um, but uh, you know I don't know. It was it was incredible. And and I do take so much from that year though about actually that year with um, uh, 1993. It was a year where a lot of these ideas and lessons about team and personal ownership and responsibility came together for me in a picture that made me understand probably for the first time, what it was like to be on a team, um, a proper team. Um, and I don't know, there's a lot of teams out there that just are not fully functioning, mature teams. Um, and uh, a lot of teams are made up of just a whole bunch of individuals. But that was the first time I'd ever been on a team that felt like we were family and a unit. And no matter what, we had each other's back. I had just not experienced that um, up until that point. So I, in my today's, in my business, 20 years in business, 
you know, I, I really have the same mentality about making sure my team and my staff here know what their roles are, how that, how that role impacts other people's roles and that we all, you know, have each other's back. It was the, it was the, it was the, really the culmination of, of a whole bunch of years for me where it all somehow just started making sense. Right. Now the, the team, some, for some reason, they kind of, I guess Don Maloney broke up the team the following year. Uh, do you even know why that, that was the case? No, I don't, I, I don't, you know, it's funny, you know, I, it sounds terrible. I did not pay attention to a lot that was happening around me. Cause I just was always, <laughs> I was just, I was just, there was just so much crap that I was thinking about for myself. You know, right. there are some guys that were just amazing students of the game. Uh, and they would study stuff. And I, I really was so insular in trying to just get my crap together for the next day. Um, I, you know, I had had two, my, my two best seasons, you know, my two seasons lead there were like 30, 30 points for the first time. Um, and, uh, but uh, you know, Marty and Travis, they start escalating up the lineup. I kind of stalled out a little bit. So, you know, I think they, based on draft picks, with some guys come in. That, so I started fading out. Um, and then guys probably needed to renew contracts. But I, I don't know if it's that, that notion that, um, you know, that team that won was really still a, a largely Bill Torrey team. Right. And, uh, you know, Donnie or whoever comes in wants to start putting their thumbprints all over it. But, um you know, on paper, we were not necessarily that great a looking team. Uh, so I'm sure they kind of got, all right, well, to do this, we actually have to go get real guys that can do this on a regular basis, which obviously didn't work out. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I have no idea why people start destroying teams. The only way I can imagine that is, you know, trying to hit a certain uh, budget cap. I have no idea. I mean, we weren't making that much money back then. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Were you surprised that uh, Pierre and Vladimir got traded when they did? Yeah. I mean, I I don't understand all that stuff. I really don't. Um, and, uh, you know, for Pierre's sake, good for him to get to go and experience, uh, you know, playing in Montreal. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, and I, I don't know why that's, you know, I have a hard time understanding that. I, I don't even really the more I'm thinking about this, trying to give you an answer. I don't know why that happens, but yeah, when you start seeing guys that you love, I mean, I, Pierre Turgeon was my roommate um, for uh, a few years. Right. And uh, it was hard seeing him go. Cause I, I, I really had a really great relationship with him and um, he was such a thoughtful, hardworking guy, gentle, but God, he was competitive and talented and um, he was a quiet leader. Uh, not a big boisterous leader, and I, I I I think we missed that. Yeah, and then when Kurt Muller came back, all the drama surrounding him, was there any ill feelings towards him? I don't think so. I think people actually, you know, ultimately, I think people, you know, Kirk's a hard guy to, to hate. He's a great dude, um, and uh, I honestly don't. Again, going back to my um, my focused uh, um, life was not even that aware of all the drama around Kirk until later. Right. Um, but uh, I do somehow get great satisfaction out of knowing that everybody else was going through the same crap I was going through just differently. <laughs> uh, but I was, uh, I was very focused on, uh, on my day to day surviving the next day and staying on the team was, was, uh, was not uh, an easy task. Yeah. So I don't, I was, 
I really was unaware of Kirk, Kirk's drama and what that brought to the team. Um, but I did certainly know after that, after that year, you know, we, we, we lost that, that spark of, of, it just took a few pieces out and, you know, this raging fire of an awesome team, you know, we were, we were kind of a you know, smoldering fire. We didn't quite have all the pieces anymore. And you can't just bring talent in and, and assume it's going to fit the same way. You know, I look at the Raptors and I love that, you know, they lost some key guys. And uh, part of the thing is they actually took these new guys aside and, Said, like you're not going to play here because you're not buying in. You don't. You're not right. seeing what it takes to actually keep this thing going. And they were open about it. And it was like they they got on board. They started to understand what those pieces were. I don't think we did enough of any of that at the time, quite frankly. Um, and so yeah, it's kind of sad being part of teams that you know you have these great highs and then how quickly you can go through back into having those those dark lows again. Yeah, don't tell it. I can only imagine what it's like as an Islander fan, you know, to have such a great, great run and then dark years, dark years, and then a really spectacular run that we were fortunate to have. And I, quite frankly, I just, you know, I'm very hopeful to see how this new team right now um, takes the success of this year and whether or not they can turn that into playoff success. And maybe it takes a year or two even to do that. But, uh, they're playing brilliant hockey. They've, they've got looked like great leaders. They seem to have all the all the makings of, of a team that's going to uh, uh, do well in, in you know into the playoffs. And it's exciting to watch. Um, but you know, as a fan, that's 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 super hopeful. And uh, you know, it's amazing how quickly you stop you know you stop thinking about the old. 92 to 93 team, which is fine because now you have something to hold on to and you're looking at and, and that, that, that is bringing new hope. Um, it's great when you can be, you know, watch a team and, and be hopeful of that future. And right now the Islanders have all that vibe going on, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I started following the team right after the drive for five. So it was like right when you got drafted. So, you know, it was a couple of good years, down years, 93 obviously was, you know, memorable still is to me but uh they have the right people in place now they lost you know who who knew you lose john Tavares and uh the team you know actually prospers so it's just it's it's a funny sport you know the team the team bought into it well that happens so much more than anyone seems to give credit uh you know you, you lose a top guy and if if you've got people and yeah, you see that you see that happening quarterbacks you know a guy with backup quarterback all of a sudden yeah. Big, oh god what are we going to do and you know they step in and they they rise to the occasion it gives oxygen and playing time to guys that aren't getting it there are a lot of great hockey players that for whatever reason just aren't getting the right ice time at the right moment they're not getting the the you know the at bats in, a, in a, another sports term but um that given that right little moment of time opportunity you know as they say opportunity you know Everybody has an opportunity. It's what you do with with it when you get the when when that opportunity comes. And uh, it is there are a lot of players right now that probably, if given that opportunity, that little door opens, would surprise a lot of people. And they may work their whole career and and play it out and never get it and never see their full potential. But when you see a Tavares leave, you know I, I can't tell you who that would have benefited. But boy, you know all of a sudden a little less spotlight there, and it gives a little more oxygen to other guys. And uh, 
it uh, it happens a fair bit, and it was really really nice to see that momentum and that energy build. Um, Tavares is you know living his dream, <clears throat> excuse me, living his dream, playing in his home market. Um, and I know there's a bunch of bad blood over that, but uh, <laughs> you know doesn't hurt when you look at your team and they're doing fantastic. Yeah, you know he, he's he, we mentioned Dale Hunter before, we mentioned Kurt Muller, and unfortunately now. John Tavares is on that list right now for Islander fans, you know. <laughs> Islander fans are some of the best, and I'll put it in brackets, worst for having <laughs> memories that, that uh, you know, that, that when their hearts are broken, man, they they don't ever forget it. I mean, for God's sakes, between uh, when, when I started playing uh, in those uh, Islander Ranger series, right. you know, they, Island, the, Ranger seri- the Ranger fans were cheering horrible things about players that still weren't on our team anymore. <laughs> and uh, the, likewise with the Islander, the Islander fans were bringing up stuff from eras ago. They don't forget, and they are really the loudest fans. Honestly, they were always the loudest fans, uh, and it was noticeable. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that uh, you know, as much as I, I like coming down and uh, uh, seeing games in Brooklyn, only because of its proximity to New York, um, it's not an ideal arena, as we all know, right. uh, for hockey. Um, but it's going to be quite something. And we're talking to the guys that were, are building the new arena and all the alumni guys pretty much were giving them an earful. Make it, <laughs> make damn sure that building can be loud. Right, exactly. Uh, because so many new buildings absorb that sound and it just feels horrible. And we're like, make the boards rattly, make this, you know, and they're like, we're doing everything we can to, to keep that, uh, to give basically the fans an instrument to make that noise and show their pride. And I think, I'm excited to see what that what that looks like. Yeah, so so our Islander fans. I mean, last year was great, you know, sweeping the Penguins in the first round, being at the Coliseum, but then having the second round be at Barclays, which was a little weird. And I think that kind of took a little bit of the steam out of what the Islanders accomplished in the first round. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, yeah. you lose 25% of your fans. Like, you just, there's nowhere to put them. Right. And, uh, you know, and, you know, a bunch of those seats can't see one goalie. I was shocked when I saw it. I loved, you know, I love everything about it. I really did. And, I, and it was it was a good, probably, interim place to kind of get everything else figured out. But with the new ownership, you know, um, they have breathed, they've breathed life into the into that team. Um, going right into our alumni association, um, John Ledecky has been a spectacular um, voice for the team um, and so welcoming, so warm, um, and like any organization, you know, that passion and that energy and that expectation of what it means to be a good citizen um, starts at the top. And if you don't have that at the top and you don't have that in your GM and you don't have that in your coach, you know, you've got a dysfunctional team, quite frankly, that might win some games, but they're not, it's not a good thing. John Ledecky, I met him by chance at an uh, alumni dinner a um, bunch of years ago now, uh, I think the year he had taken on back the majority. And uh, this guy knew everything about me by a chance meeting. And I'm like, sorry, who are you? Like, right. no, one, no one knows anything about me. I, I, I'm certainly not a, an Islander alumni that people know much about. Uh, and he goes, oh, Brad, I'm John Ledecky. I'm the new owner of the Islanders. I'm like, but the owners of the team when I played don't know anything about me. So how the hell do you have time to figure out what I used to do? And so from that moment on, when I realized he cared about all of it, um, I bought in. Like, what do you need? Do you want us to come down? All right, I'm coming down. Like, 
I, whatever you need us to be. I respected the fact that, that he opened that door and is making an effort. Um, and uh, I think that changes a lot. I think it makes uh, it makes everybody feel proud of a team when they're playing well because they're good people doing good things, not just a, you know a team that's winning by chance. I think it's a top-down energy. I think they've got right mix of players. And I, they, those guys are – of course, if you're playing on a team with, with a positive ownership group and a positive um, uh, energy – I don't know how that doesn't uh, permeate right down to, uh, you know, people working, uh, working games, you know, uh, at the ticket booths. Like you feel proud of them. Right. And you mentioned having a positive GM and a positive coach uh, towards the end of the career. You had uh, Mike, Mike Milbury. <laughs> of course you're going there. I have to, you know, it's a perfect segue. Um, I'll you know, what you want, but it was, it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. It was honestly, it was horrible. And it was, it was probably it was it was a it was a crappy way to go. I had a, I, I had a personal injury that uh, uh, broke my wrist in training camp that year that my last year. Um, the surgery actually did more damage. They put the screw in my scaphoid bone, uh, and they they the, the sharp tip of that screw actually came through the bone, and so the bone healed, but the tip of that screw started doing more damage in my wrist. No one knew that was happening. Uh, Mike Milbury, as I wasn't able to recover fast enough or play well enough, uh, when I did come back, uh, they kept telling me it was in my head. And right. I'm, no, it's in my wrist and there's something going on. So my season was really a series of uh, they brought me back to start playing. I think Milbury wanted to put more size in the lineup. I really couldn't use my wrist well, so I, they just taped it up like a cast. And I got to that point where it was about 18 games, and I, I knew that if I played much more, um, my wrist was going to just, you know, it was going to end. And uh, and I had to protect myself from an insurance standpoint. Or, and so after 20 games, you know, the insurance company goes, well, clearly you don't have a problem. Well, I had a problem, and I was dealing with it. At the same time, I saw and was watching stories of other players, like a Dennis Vasky that year, cracked his head open on a on – a, on a, the dasher boards um, he should probably not have played the rest of the year and and Milbury basically said if you don't come back you know you're uh, you'll never play here again like again I may be misquoted here but I remember Dennis going through that he came back way too early uh, you know as the stories are told and uh, you know Flatley was our captain and uh, I'm told the Milbury said you know hey Flats enjoy the last three weeks being a, the Islander captain because you're not going to be the captain from there uh it was just kind of a it was a it was a weird vibe around him he never liked me so whatever uh but i don't know i saw through all of it i don't think any of the old alumni guys really loved the fact that he was uh, uh running the show there uh, we were probably as dysfunctional as we had been was probably the peak of our dysfunction was then um and uh i so i left on a real bummer note I was told never don't come into the dressing room the rest of the year because I'm a distraction. Um, and so basically I, my career was over fairly unceremoniously. I remember having a conversation with my agent and I said, here's what's going on. And, uh, you know, and he just said, well, it was so just a matter of fact statement. He goes, well, Brad, I think you're done. And I'm, it was such an easy thing to digest. It was like, yeah, I think you're right. And so I ended and, uh, you know, faded off into the sunset and, you know, saw that thing fall apart. I just know how many guys really struggled with that relationship themselves. Right. I had not a great finish with Mike. So for, for better or worse, that was my personal experience. 
it was a I just felt it was a terrible administration to to have been working under during that time. You know, whether I was ever going to renew my contract that year or not, I doubt it. Um, just knowing that if they were running the show, I don't think I had a future there. But um, uh, I just the, the way the organization was treating me at the time was as though it was all just in my head and I was a faker. <laughs> I don't I don't know why anybody actually does that because it's not helpful to anyone's cause and particularly not to a career to, to be a faker. But um, treated a whole bunch of guys like crap during my my last year, and uh, I, I I won't forget that. No, and trust me, Islander fans, like you said before, have a you know very long memory, and they you know he uh, was doing an Islander game recently on NBC, and they, he talked about how um, he was in one of the suites, and he heard fans yelling at him for to jump from the suites because oh, they could not stand him, and it's just it, it's brutal, but thankfully you know things are looking better now and he's long, you know, long in the past, but I got one more few and it's, it's sort of hockey, but it's more music. Um, I'm a big Kathleen Edwards fan. And, How did that happen? Well, I, I went to school up in Buffalo, uh, but th- th- this was even before she came out. She was on one show, uh, six o'clock news, I think was the song that was out. Love and, uh, yeah. And, you know, immediately, you know, fell in love with music and sure enough, uh, one of her videos featured you in it. Yes. Well, yeah, Kathleen, uh, so my a good friend, I got, uh, uh, I, I, re, I, listen, music, music saved me through a lot of that tough okay. hockey stuff. Uh, I, I made mixtapes all the time for my road trips, I made them for other guys. I made the tapes largely for the dressing room. Um, and, um, um, just by, by chance got to know a few musicians back home in, in, in Canada. Um, and, Whereas in New York, I'd met celebrities, quote unquote celebrities, right. you know, one time meets and that's it. And that was interesting. In Canada, I had the pleasure of meeting a few people and they became like lifelong friends um, of which Kathleen Edwards was um, introduced to me through that group. And again, just like you, her music kills me. By the way, she's got a new record coming up. Yes, I know. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we became very good friends. And uh you know, she she was playing a gig at the Phoenix uh, Theater here in Toronto, big big theater, and uh, against her uh, team's better judgment, she had uh, asked me to come up and play a song, uh, which no one knew who I was particularly, um, in front of these people, and we played this very delicate song, uh, "Good Things," which if you look back on um, uh, an earlier record, "Good Things," very quiet song, but it was incredible, and uh, we played this song. I think people thought I must have written a song with her or something, but I didn't. And so that was amazing. Uh, and then, you know, that was that all came about because we were on a campfire one point. And I sang that song for her. And she says, all right, well, you're going to come up and sing that with me. And so she's just been this incredible music, uh, writer and musician and has had so many challenges herself, quite frankly. I think there's an identification and, a, and a, um, there's a, a connection between musicians largely and hockey players. Because your life's on your life is on the road, your life is very um, um, difficult at times, as much as it's glamorous to many others. And there's a shared experience in it. And um, a lot of hockey players, probably including Kathleen, wishes she could have played hockey. Um, but uh, anyway, so she's doing this video, and she asked me to come. Uh, and she'd also had Paul Coffey in there. Right. And unfortunately for Paul, he had to leave early. I came a bit late, and by chance, I think I got more screen time than Paul Coffey, which I think is hilarious. Uh, and that's probably not the way that was supposed to be, but I just happened to arrive at the right time for a couple key scenes. 
And so I'm, you know, I'm thrilled. You get your, you get your hockey card, you get your first hockey card, and then you get into your first music video. I'm like, boom, done. That was fantastic. Anyway, so she's a good, good friend, and uh, I really, she, she, she's had a whole other journey. Opened a coffee shop in Ottawa. She's had a, right. she had her year off like I had my year off, uh, and she's coming back to the game now. And I love that that that, that journey is a common one. And so we have, we have a lot in common that way. But, uh, you know, here's hoping that this next record, I'm sure it's just going to be incredible. Um, you know, but success is measured in so many different ways these days. Yeah, it sure is. And I, I've been a big fan, like I said before, since her first album. And like one of the, the, probably the best thing about going to school up in Buffalo was having all the good like Canadian music kind of bleed through that I wouldn't have heard, you know, living in New York City. So that, that really that really helped, you know, like, like the hip, you know, cause yeah. yeah they, that, Canada just like is, um, it, you know, it's a, well, it, it really is like, it's an incredible music scene. I've, I've had the, the privilege of, um, kind of volunteering time, uh, for a, an organization called music counts, okay. uh, it raises money for music education and you know, music grants. Um, it's part of, um, Karis, which runs the Junos, which for people in the States, they won't know what that is, but that's, um, it's kind of like the Canadian Grammys. Right. And uh, so there's a music education piece. We do a hockey game on the Friday of the weekend of Junos. We've raised over a million dollars over that time. <clears throat> but during that time, um, it's, you know, so self-serving terribly in, in some cases, because I get to hang out and play music and get to know mm -hmm. these musicians who I, um, I just respect and idolize. And the Canadian music scene is so vivid and rich. Um, the talent up here is incredible. It's a hard place to make a living because, you know, uh, you've got to be on the road touring. And unfortunately, we are a long, wide, narrow body of people. So right. the winters for Canadian musicians are hard and long, and uh, you get a lot of miles put on those uh, vans, buses, and cars. So I just I respect the hell out of the scene up here. And uh, uh, I'm so proud to have you know, to continue to be part of this Music Counts program. Um, and uh, and it, to me, is a beautiful coming together of those two passions of hockey, music, and great people. So I've been very, very lucky with that. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to check out Brad's video with Kathleen, it's I Make the Dough, You Get the Glory. Uh, Marty McSorley's in it. Say Paul Coffey. Well, Paul, Coffey's, uh, Paul Coffey's in it. Marty McSorley. I don't think Marty McSorley had ever heard of her or knew of her i think it was a favor some uh, oh, okay paul might have made it happen but he was a good sport and uh uh it's it's a, it's actually a really clever uh video songs really written about her and her, her her writing partner jim bryson uh where you know she thought jim bryson was wayne gretzky in terms <laughs> of quality and all right. of a sudden her, her career took off and uh she started doing well and she like couldn't believe that you know you know, you're 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 Wayne Gretzky. You know, I'm I'm Marty McSorley. I'm I'm the grinder. And uh, anyways, that was her analogy, and I thought it was it was really fun and playful. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure we can spend like hours talking about music. But yeah, I know, I know. we can get off on a big tangent here. Yeah, absolutely. But Brad, this was great, and I really appreciate your time. Oh, wonderful. Hope I'll be down in New York, and I'll see every single one of you. I'm sure. And a special thanks to Brad Delgarno for joining me today. And if you haven't checked out the first episode of Lighthouse Look Back featuring Tom Pody, please do so. And you can follow Lighthouse Hockey Podcast on Twitter at LHH Podcast. Be sure to check out LighthouseHockey.com and all the amazing podcasts on the channel featuring PT Isles, 
Islanders Anxiety, Isles Buzz, My Favorite Islander Game, and Islander Award winners. A new episode of White House Look Back will be coming very soon. Thanks for listening.